0: In your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 103. I had hoped to be back in John's Gospel, though I spent the week with Pastor Naphtali. It was a wonderful time. We had a good time in Armstrong on Thursday night. And uh, he is in Surrey today, where he is sharing his report and preaching morning and evening. And then, God willing, I take him back to the airport early on Wednesday morning. So, Psalm 103, we looked at this psalm last year about this time. Thanksgiving Day in Canada is tomorrow. I think that every Christian ought to celebrate Thanksgiving to some degree or other each and every day as we ponder God's goodness to us, as we consider his works toward us, and as we consider his grace and mercy. Well, Psalm 103 is one of those types of psalms where David blesses God and he gives various reasons as to why he blesses God. So I'll read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll look at it in some detail. So Psalm 103, beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you so very much that you are God for us, that you are God of grace and mercy and glory and power, and a God who has dealt so kindly with us. We know we're not heaven-bound because of our works or our law-keeping, but because of your provision in the gospel of your dear Son, our Savior. We thank you for that life and death and resurrection. We thank you for that promise of that inheritance to come. We thank you that Christ is even now at the right hand of God Almighty. And we look forward to his return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we praise you that you have fit us, that you have prepared us through forgiveness and through clothing us in that righteousness wherein we can stand before the judge on that day. And Lord God, we pray that many others would come to a saving knowledge of our our Lord Jesus. We pray for this place. We pray throughout this city and this country that as the gospel goes forth today, you would bless it by the power of the Spirit. Sinners would come to see that Jesus Christ alone is able to save to the uttermost. Sanctify and strengthen your people. Build us up in our most holy faith. Cause us to be a people that exercise gratitude and thankfulness as we ponder the great things that you have done, that you are doing and that you promise to do in the future. And forgive us now for all sin and unrighteousness. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as I said, thanksgiving ought to be in the hearts of God's people each and every day as we ponder his goodness and his kindness and his mercy to us. And I think thanksgiving or gratitude is perfectly fitted to acknowledge the graciousness of God. In other words, we don't thank God because of our performance. We don't thank God because we're great guys and girls. No, we thank God because in the gospel, he has begraced us. He has bestowed upon us favor in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So gratitude or thankfulness expressed in the hearts of God's people is an acknowledgement of what the hymn writer said, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. We receive all blessing and all provision from our good God. David was not a stranger to this. The history of David, king of Israel, demonstrates that he knew how to abound, but he also knew how to be abased. He knew what victory was, he knew what triumph was, but he also knew what, what uh, uh, the, the depths of despair could bring. He knew his own sin his own unrighteousness, his lawlessness. He celebrates here not only the the, the provision of God in terms of temporal things, God kept David going, God kept David alive, but he acknowledges God's hand in the spiritual things as well. And so as we go through this psalm, I'm going to encourage all of us to consider how it's applicable in our lives to see that David's response is appropriate here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So let's look first at the reminder to bless God in verses one and two. Secondly, the reasons to bless God in verses three to 18. And then finally, the reflection on the kingdom of God in verses 19 to 22. But note first this reminder. David's talking to himself here. After telling us that he himself penned this under the inspiration of the Spirit, a psalm of David, we now see David talk to himself. Perhaps you've been in a car and you've looked over and you've seen somebody talking to themselves. Now, I know it's perfectly appropriate these days to consider they might be on the phone. But years ago, when we didn't have phones, you'd see people doing that. You might see me doing that if you pulled up next to me. People need, at times, to talk to themselves, and David here reminds himself concerning this particular responsibility to bless the Lord. Notice, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This is not a practice confined to Psalm 103. For instance, in Psalms 42 and 43, David again talks to himself. There he's despondent. There he's downcast. There he's what we might call depressed. And so he says to himself, very specifically and appropriately, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So again, Psalms 42, Psalm 43, David speaks to himself. It is as it were, he takes himself by the scruff of the the, the shirt and he says, listen, don't continue in this despondency. Don't continue in this depression. Don't continue in this melancholic state, but rather hope in God. Now, brethren, that's not going to cure all your ills. That's not going to set you alight on the the path of joy and happiness, but it's a good start. It's a good place to begin, to speak to yourself concerning the truth of God's holy words. And there is a self-consciousness here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. But notice, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. He doesn't want to keep anything back. He doesn't want to hold out with reference to God. He doesn't want to be a miser or a scrooge. He doesn't want to just dole out a little bit of blessing. But this God is so glorious. This God is so gracious. This God is so worthy. He imitates, or rather Paul imitates him in Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, God is so great, God is so glorious, God has been so profuse in his blessing to us, let us in turn bless him, let us in turn praise him, let us meet his grace with our gratitude and let it well up in our hearts and minds so that we can adore him and honor him. Lloyd-Jones makes the observation with reference to David speaking to himself here. He says, have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You listen to yourself. Oh, you're, no, no, nobody likes you. Nobody cares about you. Nobody wants you. you. You have all these circumstances that are bad. You need to talk to yourself. You need to get God's word in your mind and heart. You need to say with David here, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And not only does he do do this once, but he repeats it specifically in verse 2a. So after verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then in verse 2a, bless the Lord, O my soul. What do you think the theme of his psalm is? Ah, blessing the Lord? Yes, that's it precisely. When he repeats this, but as well, notice how the psalm ends. He goes from A to Z with the same theme in mind. Notice in verse 22, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. So for David, this is a necessity. For David, this is a corrective. For David, this is a rebuke. For David, this is encouraging. For David, he needs to remember to bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And I think that one of the reasons why David reminds himself is because of the tendency to forget. We just sang in the hymn, prone to wander, prone to leave the God that I love. That's pathetic, isn't it? It's sad, but it's the experience consistently of all God's people. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God that we love. We're prone to not bless the Lord. We're prone to not express gratitude. We're prone to see our our situation and our circumstances and our miseries, and we're prone to not acknowledge the reality that God is for us even in the midst of that. So notice in verse 2b, he says, "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, "'bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, "'and forget not all his benefits.'" He wouldn't say that if there wasn't the tendency to forget the benefits of God. He wouldn't say that if there wasn't the, 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 the propensity in the heart of even God's people, a man after God's own heart, to forget this vital aspect of true and undefiled religion. Not only visiting widows and orphans in their distress and keeping oneself unspotted from the world, but praising our great God, expressing gratitude to our glorious Lord. Forget not all his benefits. David outlines this because of a few things. First, the command to Israel. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, you see an emphasis at least a couple of times on the necessity to not forget. You can mark this down, brethren, and I'm stealing this, borrowing it from Dale Ralph Davis. Amnesia produces apostasy. Amnesia produces apostasy. Forgetfulness leads to defection. What's well, one of the means by which the people of God continue steadfast? One of the means by which the people of God continue perseveringly? One of those means is gratitude, thankfulness, acknowledging the grace of God. Well, God knew this relative to the history of Israel. God knew this with reference to the covenant people. God knew that he was going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. What might their temptation be once they go into that land flowing with milk and honey? The temptation might be to not thank God. The temptation might be to forget God. In fact, they are reminded on several occasions when you go into the land, when you have vineyards that you didn't grow, when you have wells that you didn't dig, when you have food and blessings that you didn't get on your own merit, then remember the Lord. Because this tendency to forgetfulness will bring defection from the Lord very quickly. So notice Deuteronomy 6. We have what's called the Shema in verse 4. It's the central confession of Israel's faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the response to that proposition is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then God, through Moses on the plains of Moab, enjoins that the people of God teach these things to their children. When you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, There's to be impact of the word of God on the life of the individual, in terms of the family. This law should be written on the gate so that society benefits and prospers from the goodness and the kindness of the word of God. And then notice specifically in verses 10 to 12. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware. Why? Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You see a similar em- uh, emphasis in Deuteronomy 8, and then a curse associated with the covenant is in Deuteronomy 28, 47. In other words, God pronounces curses upon the nation of Israel if they go into the land and they defect, if they go into the land and they apostatize, if they go into the land and they don't do what God had called them to do. 28:47. God upbraids the children of Israel when they end up in the land, and instead of being joyful, and instead of expressing their gratitude, and instead of expressing their thankfulness to the God who provided that, they were just the opposite. It's for no accident that Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tells us to do all things without complaint or without disputing. Why is that? because the proven track record of Israel in the Old Covenant shows complaint. It shows a lack of remembrance. It shows a tendency to apostasy through amnesia. And so David, as he takes his his soul by the scruff of the neck, and he says, bless the Lord, forget not all his benefits, he knows that this is a temptation. He knows that this is a peculiar challenge for the people of God. You have the tendency, so there's this command given to Israel, and then this tendency to forget. Brethren, is your day punctuated by thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord? If it is, praise God. Maybe give us a lesson on how you achieve that and how you manage in a successful way to operate at that fever pitch. For most of us, we need to be reminded. We need to take our soul by the scruff of the neck and say, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. And of course, the presence of remaining corruption. It's not confined to one place or the other in the New Testament, but several of Paul's epistles emphasize the necessity for thankfulness. Again, it acknowledges the grace-based character of our salvation. So we see the psalmist practice. We see the psalmist reminder, forget not all his benefits. Now we move to the reasons to bless God in verses 3 to 18. So you see the progression, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Well, what benefits are those, David? I'm gonna tell you in verses three to 18. If his soul should say to him, well, what are those benefits, David? He's gonna tell his soul. And as one who's penning scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's gonna tell all of us. If you ask the question, what am I supposed to be thankful for tomorrow? What am I supposed to be thankful for today? What are the reasons that I have to bless the Lord? Well, listen to David. David furnishes us with a lot of things, a lot of particulars, a lot of details by which we can can appropriate in our own prayer closets. We can appropriate around our own dinner table tomorrow. When we rehearse the blessings of God, gratitude and thankfulness is the natural reflex from the blood-bought children of God. It's just normal. It's just the way it ought to be. So let's look at this section 3 to 18 under three considerations. First, the identification of the gifts, verses three to five. Secondly, the recipients of the gifts, verses six and seven. And then finally, the section rounds out with the giver of the gifts in verses eight to 18. So in other words, David starts first with what God does in terms of gifting his people, but he ends with who God is in terms of gifting his people. That's two good things for us to contemplate. Not only what we have as provision from God, but the God who gives it, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We need to understand not only the fact that he gives his son, but we also ought to contemplate the giver of the son. God did not spare his own son, the apostle says in Romans 8, but he delivered him up how shall he not with him then freely give us all things? In other words, if the father did the greatest in giving up his son to death, then he's gonna do the lesser visiting you on a Thursday when you stand in need of grace. So we need to not only know the gift, but it's good to know the giver as well. So David highlights the gifts, but David highlights the giver. Notice in terms of the identification of the gifts, we'll break these down into two sections, spiritual, physical, spiritual and physical. We, as New Covenant Christians, know all about the spiritual. We're not so much thankful to God for the physical. And I don't know why that is. I mean, food from Costco is as much provision from the hand of God as going out into your garden and and reaping the harvest. We have been blessed by God in terms of temporal provision. Perhaps you need to be in a less affluent country to sort of focus in on this or hone in on this. You know, the, the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray, you know, for your daily bread. You know, some have, you know, pantries, and I'm not saying this is necessarily wicked with a few, you know, foodstuffs stored up. Perhaps we lose sight of our dependence upon God each and every day. But our dependence upon that God each and every day is as much the dependence that David had on that God each and every day. So we'll notice those physical blessings in just a moment, but notice the spiritual blessings. And he starts this off in verse 3a and he starts this off with what Spurgeon calls a chief boon of our gospel. When he highlights the spiritual provision that God has afforded, he begins with the forgiveness of sins. So notice in verse 3, who forgives all your iniquities. Why do you think David starts there? Because David understood his guilt before a holy God. David understood what he was before God's grace came to him as both shepherd and as king. Remember that incident in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. When kings went out to battle, David didn't go. David sent Joab in his place. David instead engaged in some leisurely recreational activity. Just happened to turn out to be adultery and murder, of course, and God dispatches Nathan the prophet to reprove him. And then God says, I have atoned for your sin. I have dealt with your sin. So David understood not only the guilt of his wretchedness, but he understood the grace of God. So those who know their guilt, those who've experienced grace, again, the reflex action is the gratitude that is consistent with God's bounty and that's precisely what we see here. He says, who forgives all your iniquities? So David's guilt, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. David's uh, the grace of God, 2 Samuel 12, 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. And then the gratitude of David expressed here and elsewhere. This isn't confined to Psalm 103 in this altar. We've got Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 65, 3. David says, iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for that when he starts to sort of underscore God's goodness and graciousness and provision that, that demands or elicits the response of gratitude and thankfulness, it's not accidental that he starts in the forgiveness of sins. It's not accidental that when Paul does a similar thing in Ephesians chapter one, I've already cited verse three, bless, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he outlines the specific reasons why we're to bless God. The father chose us, the son redeems us, the spirit seals and guarantees us. Notice when he deals with the son, guess what gets the attention in Ephesians 1, seven? In him, we have Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. That doesn't surprise the blood-bought children of God, does it? When you read the celebration on the part of the people of God and the thing that they seem to isolate for specific attention, being forgiveness, as a Christian believer, you're not surprised. Because as a Christian believer, you say, yay and amen. As a Christian believer, you rejoice when we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Isn't this one of the chiefest boons of our religion to be forgiven, to be cleansed in that fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness? to have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according not to just a a meager amount of the riches of grace, but according to to the riches of his grace. It ought not to surprise us that David begins here. The Geneva Bible says that is the beginning and chiefest of all benefits, remission of sin. Spurgeon says he selects a few of the choicest pearls from the casket of divine love, threads them on the string of memory and hangs them about the neck of gratitude. He goes on to say, pardon sin is, in our experience, one of the choicest boons of grace, one of the earliest gifts of mercy. In fact, the needful preparation for enjoying all that follows it till iniquity is forgiven, healing, redemption, and satisfaction are unknown blessings. So again, it's not accidental that David starts here. It's not accidental that Paul starts here. It's not accidental that the Christian believer starts here. We're forgiven of our sins. We're cleansed in the blood of the righteous one. And notice, it's not some of our sins. Wouldn't wouldn't that be miserable? If in verse 3a, he says, who forgives some of your iniquities? He just forgives some of them. That's not good news, is it? Not at all. Just just some? Just, Just a part? Just a few? Just a little bit? That would be depressing. See, we don't preach the depressing news. We preach the good news. We preach the gospel. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Well, that must mean just the small ones, right? He doesn't really forgive the big ones. Again, it's not some of your iniquities, it's all of your iniquities, and the all there means all, big ones, small ones, medium ones, whatever sins you have, when you bring them to that fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness, they will be washed. You will be cleansed. In Psalm 25, pardon my iniquity, O Lord, for your name's sake, for it is great. It's the greatness of the psalmist's sin that provokes him to go to the greatness of God's grace to fetch out forgiveness. See, this idea that I'm so sinful, God could never forgive me, that's not biblical. That's the devil getting betwixt you or between you and the cross. If you hear that whispering, I'm not saying audible, I'm not saying that he's gonna come and whisper in your ear, but if you feel in your heart, I've just done too many wrong things. I've just done too many bad things. I've just sinned a lot against God. A Psalm of David, he's the man identified in 1 Samuel 13 as a man after God's own heart. And he's the man that covered up his own sinful adultery with conspiracy to commit murder. You you get that sometimes. You ask people, are you a sinner? Well, no, I'm not that bad. I've never committed adultery and I've never, you know, I've never killed anybody. Those are the benchmark sins. Intriguing that God tells us that the benchmark sins can be forgiven. God tells us in 1 Samuel 11 and 12 that those sins, as wretched and as foul as they are, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm simply saying that God's grace is is sufficient. Newton said, I'm a great sinner, but I praise God because he's a great savior. He doesn't heal. He doesn't forgive. He doesn't pardon some of your sins. Brethren, that's not good news. Good news is verse 3a, who forgives all your iniquities. Now notice he turns from there to the physical blessings. Again, something that you and I need to see the hand of God in. The fact that God does provide, the fact that God does load us daily with benefits, that's a, another Psalm we have in Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Yeah, he's probably speaking there of the spiritual provision of God's grace in terms of keeping us from death and hell, But based on what we read in Psalm 103 and other places in David's life, we see that he's not only thankful to God for the spiritual provision, but for the temporal provision also. The fact that on several occasions, humanly speaking, David should have died. David at Keilah was ultimately saved by the Philistines from, from Saul. I mean, go figure that one out. God, in his infinite grace, uses the Philistines who hate David and want to kill David as an actual means to spare David from Saul, who wanted to exterminate him. So David doesn't say, well, I've got this forgiveness of sins, but the rest of the world, you know, that's up to me. And every accomplishment that is wrought out, it's based on my ingenuity, my savvy. No, he gives glory to God most high. In fact, at the beginning of his life or beginning of his kingship and at the end of, the li- of, of his life, he makes the same statement. 2 Samuel 4, 9 and 1 Kings 1, 29. This sort of bookends the, the professional, monarchical life of David as king of Israel. He says, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from all adversity. As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from all adversity. In 2 Samuel 4, 9... It's pretty obvious. David's on the rise. Everything David touches, is just turning to gold. It's good. He's he's a king. He's prosperous. He's he's engaged. He's he's doing these wonderful things. But then what happens? I might have mentioned 1 Samuel earlier. It's 2 Samuel 11 and 12. What happens there? So four, David says, "'God has delivered me from all adversity.'" And that's a big statement concerning the threat of Saul and con- concerning the threat of the Philistines. But then, yeah, Midas touch, Everything he touches goes well. He consolidates uh, Jerusalem as the political capital of Israel in chapter six. He, he, he has already assumed both northern and King, uh, southern tribes in terms of his rule uh seven cha- uh, chapter seven there's the the, the centralization of of or, or the the statement concerning the davidic covenant then of course second samuel 11 and 12 he he takes a turn for the worse in ter- terms of this murder and adultery thing but at the end of his life he's able to say god has redeemed me from all adversity that's a great great testimony and a great great witness and brothers and sisters as we work through this list If you've got an illness or a malady or a sickness or a disease, remember this isn't a promise that nobody will ever get thanks. I think it's a general statement concerning God's goodness and faithfulness to his people and its certitude is seen at the end of this age. Whatever crosses or problems or difficulties we have to bear in the here and now, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more thirst when we get to that new Jerusalem. Yes, we may have some tough times now, like David did, but in the midst of the tough times, we appreciate the fact that God and his grace delivers us. God and his grace keeps us going. I wonder if we ever ponder that. Why do Christians persevere? Well, they're especially self-disciplined. They're stoic in their approach to life. They can grin and bear it. They can knuckle under why do they grin and bear it and knuckle under? Because God's grace is sustaining them, because God's grace is upholding them, because God's grace is vindicating them in these daily battles. Notice, David praises the fact, or God for the fact of physical healing, who heals all your diseases in 3B. He speaks of the protection from physical threat, who redeems your life from destruction. He speaks of the provision of loving kindness in 4b, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies and the blessing of temporal goods. Notice in verse 5, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Brethren, these are physical blessings received from God. I think it was Matthew Henry commenting on that bit when uh, Ruth is invited to sit at the table of Boaz's servants. And she not only gets the bread, but they pass her a little dish of vinegar to dip in, right? God is good. He could have made everything taste like dirt, but he made mangoes and avocados and steaks and shrimp and all kinds of blessings. See, the psalmist recognizes the provision of God in the physical. Certainly, he forgives all our iniquities, but he sustains us on the the daily basis, He is there with us in the midst of trial. He is there with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He is there with us, sustaining us and blessing us and providing for us in all circumstances. And again, this psalm is not a promise in the hand of the health, wealth, and prosperity guys saying you're never gonna have any trouble. You're only ever gonna eat steak and lobster. Brethren, that's not how the psalm is to be interpreted. We reflect with David on the kindness and the provision and the goodness of God we reflect on the reality that could always be a lot worse. I could be in, in hell what, 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 what my sins deserve, but God in his grace provides for us and David has no problem celebrating him for, that, for those facts. So he identifies the gift, spiritual, physical, and then notice he highlights the recipients of the gifts, specifically in verses uh, uh, verse seven. He made, I'm sorry, verse six, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Paul tells us not many wise, not many noble are the ones that typically God calls to his kingdom. Now, when Paul says that, he doesn't mean no wise, no noble. God saves rich people. God saves noble men. God saves persons that need Bible studies from Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to trust in uncertain riches, not to, not to be uncharitable, but, but to give profusely to those who have need. God does save all kinds of people from every class, every, you know, section in society. But there does seem to be in the heart of God, this love for the oppressed. There's the bit in the book of Exodus when God basically says, if you don't treat your widows and orphans properly, I'm going to kill you with the sword. Hmm. What would he say to our generation that doesn't treat the widow or the orphan at all well? What would he say to our generation that doesn't treat the the, the baby in utero or the older person getting ready to, to, to pass from this life? How do we treat them? We treat them barbarically. We ought to fear that sword because God most high is not mocked. And yet we see that heart of God for the oppressed. And I think some of it is connected to what you see next in verse seven. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. In Exodus chapter 2, right around verse 25, the children of Israel are suffering great bondage. They're in Egypt. The, the old pharaoh is gone. The favor toward Joseph is forgotten. And now the Pharaoh has enslaved the children of Israel. What do they do? They, they cry out to Yahweh. They don't cry out in repentance and say, Lord, we sinned. Help us to, to repent and, and get our eyes back on you. No, they're just crying out because it hurts. And God hears their cry. Same with the book of Judges. You see them oppressed by foreign invaders, and what do they do? They cry out to God, and always not in the case of repentance, but it hurts, Lord. Vindicate your your people, and what does God do? He vindicates his people, so the targets of his mercy are the oppressed. The targets of his mercy are the, the children of Israel. They're the recipients of the gifts of God, now, there is a general sense outside of the communion of God's saints where do, uh, people, image bearers, oftentimes have good lives. I mentioned this earlier in the confession study, Psalm 73. Sometimes the wicked have such good lives that, that Asaph starts off with, God is good to Israel to such as fear him. Then he says, as for me, my foot nearly slipped. Why? Because I saw the righteous suffer and I saw the unrighteous abound. I wasn't sure how to make heads or tails out of that until I went into the sanctuary. Then I understood that God has set them in slippery places, talking about the wicked. In other words, they might enjoy things for a time, but not exercising gratitude to God, not having that forgiveness of sins. It will ultimately be their undoing on that day of judgment. So God looks to his oppressed people. God looks to his people and abounds in terms of gifts toward them. And that brings us to the giver of the gifts. Notice the perfections of God are indicated in verse eight. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Don't you love that? You and I can be, or have to a small degree, mercifulness and graciousness, right? If there was a command in the scripture that says, go and be merciful and gracious, you can, with the spirit aiding you, have a degree of that. It's a nice thing, right? As Christians with the spirit, We can respond to God favorably and do those things, but you can't say of us, he is merciful and gracious. You can't say of us, he is love. You can't do that. But see, God is his perfections. All that is in God is God. His essence is identical with his perfections. All that is in God is God. And so the psalmist is able to say the Lord is merciful and gracious. This is who he is, So brethren, it's good to praise him for his gifts, but it's good at times to bask in the glory of the giver himself and rejoice in the understanding of this God. He's merciful and gracious. Consider the the fact that there is a lot of things going on in the world today, and, and not just today. If we lived at the time of the Roman Empire, this would be as appropriate. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne according to Psalm 89. What's that tell us? Well, it tells us what Jesus says in Matthew 25. There's a day of reckoning coming. The enemies of God will be cut off. That's not given so that we are arrogant or bold or, uns- you know, unsavory or ungodly, but it is there to steady us and to comfort us and the knowledge and the reality that, that nothing gets past God. It, it just doesn't. He doesn't, you know, turn his back for a moment, and all the wicked just go nuts, and and then he turns back, and they're not going to get recompense. Oh, no. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, to give an account of deeds done in the body, whether good or ill. The eyes of Yahweh, according to Solomon in the book of Proverbs, are, are in every place, beholding the good and what? The evil. You see that today. People get away with what we see as murder, and we think, oh man, where's God? Well, that's not the first time that response has been evoked. God's patience is not to be interpreted by us as God's disinterest. God's ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts, His time frame is not our time frame. Imagine receiving the promise from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you're going to receive the promised land well, did they get it right away? Jacob and Joseph breathed their last, and boom, there they are in the prompt. No, we know there's a 400-year period there. We know there's a 400-year period, much of it marked by slavery and misery and oppression. A 400-year period there where it might have appeared that God's long suffering was to be interpreted as God's disinterest into the current doings of men. Brethren, we need to think God's thoughts after God and not impose our thoughts upon him. That is one of the fundamental problems that people make. Whatever we see, we interpret, and then we predicate it of God. Well, you just don't care. No, God is most loving. God is most gracious. God is accomplishing his purpose in this world. And the people of God confess that and they find comfort in it. So the psalmist praises God that he's merciful and gracious. He does this elsewhere. Psalm 35, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And then he outlines various blessings of God. So the Lord is merciful and gracious. Well, what does that look like? How do we know this? Well, he's slow to anger and he abounds in mercy. Notice what he continues with. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. See what he's doing here? He's highlighting who this God is. The specific perfections in view are his mercy and his uh, his mercy and his graciousness. And now he is showing us how that is in fact the case. He doesn't strive with us. In other words, he is there with his people, and he does, as far as we're concerned, respond to us in that condition, but with reference to his grace and mercy, he will not retain that anger forever. As well, notice, he showers us with great mercy. I love verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Now, you got to remember, this is using an analogy and a metaphor, right? It it may be the case that God's grace abounds, even the distance between heaven and earth. It actually is the case. He's using a creaturely metaphor to illustrate God's mercy to his people. Now, brethren, you might think, well, why, why is that good? Well, I think it's good as a sinner, if you've never come to the Savior, consider that sort of boundless mercy. In other words, will he receive me? Well, according to David, he will. Will he receive me? Well, according to Paul, he will. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. See, there's only so much a human author can do to illustrate just how glorious and wondrous and and kind God's grace and mercy is. And here he uses this analogy, a creaturely analogy. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And then notice he continues on. He says in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. See, again, brethren, he's not come to deal with you on just some of your sins, on just a part of your sins. Once he fixes that, then he puts you on a self-help program and you better figure it out. No, his mercy is this glorious, this wondrous. Listen to the prophet Micah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I submit that is blessed news that God goes deep sea fishing with our sins and doesn't just throw it in right at the shallow end. What happens in the shallow end? It keeps bubbling up, right? There's my sins, there's my sins, there's my sins. When he takes those sins and he casts them into the depths of the sea, and methinks that the background is Pharaoh and his armies were cast into the sea in an act of destruction by God most high to vindicate his bride as he brings them out of Egyptian bondage. He celebrates the fact that he casts our sins into the depths of the sea, They're not gonna keep coming up to harm you or or to to, to call you to liability. Now, we remember them and we are ashamed of them, but we go to the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness and and helps our conscience to deal with these things. Notice, not after after he forgives our sin, notice that he's tender toward us in verse 13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Isn't that good language? Does it make you just wanna run to God? not run away from God. He pities us. Why? Because he's a father to us. I mentioned Exodus 2. They cry out in bondage. What does God do? God calls Moses to function as the deliverer to bring his people out of bondage. In other words, they cry, he delivers. You see it as well throughout Old Testament narrative. Deuteronomy chapter 1 on the plains of Moab. Moses says, God, or God through, Moses says, I carried you through the wilderness like a father carries his son. That's the way God acts to and for his people. It's a blessed and a wonderful thing. Notice in verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that a wonderful statement? I kind of think it is. We can be somewhat... And maybe I shouldn't predicate this of we. I have, in my past, not been always, you know, as kind to my children when they were little as I ought to have been. You know, get up, knuckle under, brush off that gaping wound, and come on, let's go. God pities us. Why? Because he knows our frame. We've got the world, and we've got the devil, and both of them function to accuse us. Friends might say, you're not as holy as you ought to be. The devil's right there roaring in your ear. You're not as holy as you ought to be. But it's that self, I think, that a lot of people struggle with, right? Don't you say that to yourself? You're not as holy as you ought to be. You've heard how many sermons and you're still like dead weight. You're, you, you know, your heart's the equivalent of a cold fish on a Sunday morning. David wakes up and he says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Sometimes we wake up and we uh, hit, the, hit the snooze button. I don't know that I want to get up we can be pretty hard on ourselves. We need to remember this this aspect or facet in terms of God's nature. He pities us. He knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. I love this The sort of a, 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 a parallel to this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Brethren, if it were you and I, and we are just on the crux of heading to the cross, and we bring our three close friends with us into Gethsemane, and they fall asleep while we're exceedingly sorrowful, and while we're, you know, sweating drops of blood out of our pores, I'd be mindful to smack them on the head and say, wake up, come on, I'm in dire straits, I've got issues, I've got things I've got to contend with. He acknowledges. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. He's not condoning sin or sluggishness or anything like that, but he pities us and he knows our frame. We need to know our own frame before a thrice holy God and to realize that he deals with us as a father deals with his children Again, not so that we can go out and sin, but when we do sin, knowing that we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And then he summarizes this brief section in 15 to 18 with a contrast. With a contrast. Notice first, man. Man's transitoryness, Man's temporary Man's here for a while, maybe has some prestige for a while, but once he goes the way of all flesh, everybody forgets him. I mean, you could, if I said, name 10, you know, historic figures that we could probably do that, but 11? No. I mean, you got to really do something pretty amazing to be remembered in, you know, future generations. If your kids love you and your grandkids love you, you're doing, you're doing well. You don't need everybody else. To, you know, the, the, the memory of, so again, if you can get 10, great. You get 11, I'll be impressed. But, but notice the contrast, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. In other words, life moves on. When you rip out a piece of grass and you cover it with a parking lot, not many people reflect on, well, you know, there used to be grass there. When a guy has made major contributions to the history of the world, he dies. Usually it's his wife, his kids, and his grandkids. What's the contrast? The transitoriness, the tempor- temporary nature of man is contrasted with what? The constant, steady faithfulness of God. Verse 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to Everlasting on those who fear him. It's not transitory. It's not temporary. It's not just for Monday, but by the time Thursday comes, he's done with you. No. He says, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. That's not a pato baptist promise that God is always going to save all our children. But the general truth is, is that God very often does work in families People get converted and what do they do? They schlep their kids to church on a Sunday. Those kids sit on the the gospel preached. They also have family worship after dinner. They take out the Bible, they read a few passages, they might sing a hymn or psalm and praise to God. What does that do? It provides means to needy sinners so that by God's grace, they can be saved. So again, it's not an absolute promise and formula that, that every child of every believer is only ever going to be saved. Experience doesn't teach us that. The Bible doesn't teach us that. But in terms of the, 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 the axiomatic principle, in terms of God's mercy, it is on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do that. In other words, his people are safe. His people are secure. The grace of God in the heart of a sinner not only brings justification, not only results in sanctification, but God's preservation of that person unto the very end. So you see what David's tactic is. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Namely, the forgiveness of sins, the physical provision, the reality that God is merciful and full of kindness, the reality that God does not harbor that to himself, but profusely gives it to his people. So that is the reason. Then he ends with this reflection on the kingdom of God because this is a great encouragement to him. Notice in verses 19 to 22, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This is an encouraging statement. This is a very encouraging passage of Holy Scripture, one that I would encourage you to look at often. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. That's not a future contingency. That's a present reality right now. God is sovereign. God has made the world. God does govern all his creatures and all their actions. God most high has stationed the Lord Christ at his right hand who has all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. Brethren, let that encourage and comfort you in light of the various things going on in your life as an individual, as families, in terms of corporate societal life. Whatever difficulties we may face, we come back to these axiomatic principles. His kingdom is over all. He has absolute authority. He is in control. He is author of Romans 8, 28. We know, Paul says, that God causes all things to work for the good of those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. We're not left in doubt. We don't kind of wonder and hope, is God able to make this okay? You know, when you read the, the Joseph narratives, rehearsing a bit of what we looked at in, in Providence this morning in chapter five, well, you know, when, when, when Joseph is sitting in that pit, moaning and groaning to get out of that pit, do you know those brothers actually sit around the pit and have a sandwich? It wasn't a sandwich, but they, they ate. Could you imagine the callousness and the wretchedness of a man who could put his brother into a pit, conspire to murder him, and only be prevailed upon by the other brothers and say, no, no, let's sell him into into slavery. Great option B. But while he's in that pit, they're eating their lunch. What happens at the end of the life? What happens at the end of the, the story in Genesis 50, 20? See, we don't read the Joseph narratives to say, oh boy, just to be a hero amongst your family members. Oh boy, isn't that, God, or you meant this for evil, but God overruled it for good. Joseph sees a theology lesson in God's dealings with him. What looked miserable, him in the pit. What looked doubly miserable, his brother's eating a sandwich while he's in the pit. What looked triply miserable was when he was sold into the hands of those those marauders and then ultimately delivered up to, to Egypt. See, they didn't see that he was gonna be instrumental in preserving those people, keeping those people. You, you meant this for evil, but God overruled it for good. Pastor Naphtali's sermon last Sunday morning, Acts chapter two, how did Jesus go to that cross? Yes, via lawless hands, but according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God. God takes horrible things and makes straight things out of them. That's what he does. And that's what brings the psalmist comfort. And that, brethren, is what is going to bring you comfort. So he makes this declaration in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Now, the implication of that declaration, he teases out there in verses 20, and 20, to, uh, 20 to 22. So, so now David is not content only with grabbing his own soul by the scruff of the neck and saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, But he wants the entirety of the cosmos to join him in blessing the lord bless the lord you his angels who excel in strength who do his word heeding the voice of his word bless the lord all you his hosts you ministers of his and who who do his pleasure bless the lord all his works in all places of his dominion why is this the implication well if well if god has sovereignty over all things if God is over all things, if he governs all his creatures and all their actions, then the necessary conclusion is that all his creatures should bless him, should praise him, should honor him, and should adore him. This is David's call to the entirety of the cosmos to have thanksgiving before God most high, to acknowledge his gifts, to acknowledge the fact that the giver is good and to respond with gratitude that is appropriate in light of such a great God. Just a couple of thoughts, and then we close. I would suggest first that Thanksgiving keeps us in good company. I don't necessarily mean tomorrow you're going to be in the company of your friends or family having good food. That's not what I mean. Thanksgiving keeps us, I mean, that's not not what I mean. Have a good day tomorrow and enjoy the, the benefits of created goodness with food and your family. But The angels, the servants, the hosts, and all his works. We're in their company when we bless the Lord. All around us, men complain. All around us, men grumble. All around us, men dispute. All around us, men just do not have good things to say. So when we bless the Lord, we enter the rank of the angels. We enter the the rank of these holy servants of God that bless his holy name. I would suggest, secondly, thanksgiving directs us to God and hopefully keeps our eyes off of self and sin. It directs us to God. It acknowledges the grace-based nature of our salvation and relationship to him. And so when we're praising God for his grace, hopefully we're not engaged in sin that necessitates more of his grace. We have the examples of the godless in the scripture. You see it in the Psalms. I'll just tell you. You can look it up later. Psalm 10, 3 to 11. Psalm 94, 4 to 7. But you have that that sort of characteristic of the godless in Romans chapter 1. So Paul in Romans chapter, Romans, is going to declare the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sets forth his thesis statement in 116 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's his thesis. That's what he's going to write about. Just like you know Psalm 103 is about blessing the Lord, you know the book of Romans is about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, before he gets to how men are saved, he's got to deal with why men need to be saved And so in Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, he makes his case. As the prosecuting attorney representing God, the crown, he shows that all men everywhere are justly liable to God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And one of the things that he says is symptomatic of the Gentile, the person outside of the covenant people, outside of the oracles of God. He deals with their sin, He deals with their homosexuality. He deals with the fact that children are disobedient to parents. He deals with their violence. He deals with their theft. He deals with all those sins, those vices, those things that we look at that characterize godless men. But before he ever gets to that vice list, he deals with the crux of the matter. He deals with the problem of the heart. And you know what he says in Romans 1, 21? He says, because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, this is what man looks like. If you were to see his heart, he doesn't glorify God as God, neither is he thankful to this God. And the result is, is that he engages in all these vices. The result is, is that he engages in all these acts of lawlessness and rebellion. So when we engage in thanksgiving, it hopefully separates us from that godlessness and puts us or includes us with the company of the faithful. As well, thanksgiving keeps our eyes and affections upon God. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. What's he saying? That whether times are bad or times are good, come to the Lord God most high. Prayer and praise are fitting and appropriate for the people of God in whatever their situation or their condition. And then finally, thanksgiving promotes the proper disposition for God's children. It promotes praise to the Lord. We see that in the Psalm, verses one and two. It promotes the fear of the Lord. You see that in verse 13, and it promotes dependence on the Lord according to verse 17. So thankfulness in a Christian's life is a vital component to walking carefully before God. If you are not a Christian, I would simply ask the question, who do you thank tomorrow? really, we have this national holiday called Thanksgiving. If you're not a believer tomorrow, you might thank your wife, you cooked a nice ham. You might thank your daughter, oh, you brought a nice pie. But isn't the concept of Thanksgiving supposed to be a bit more than that? Isn't there a transcendent sort of element that is to be involved? Who does the sinner thank for for tomorrow or thankful for tomorrow? May I invite and encourage you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Believe on him and he will receive you. You get the forgiveness of sins and a righteousness that avails with God. And then I would encourage you tomorrow to thank him. And then on Tuesday to thank him. And then on Wednesday to thank him. And don't stop thanking him and expressing that gratitude because of our guilt and God's grace and the reality that he's brought us out of darkness into marvelous light. He's still in the business of doing that. He's still in the business of forgiving all the sins of sinners. So do not tarry, do not hesitate, but come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for David's mindset and heart that he so wonderfully communicates here. And I pray that you would help us to do likewise, to bless the Lord with with all our soul, with everything that is in us, cause us to reflect upon your, your gifts to us, cause us to reflect upon you as the giver, and may we respond in worship and in praise and in adoration. We thank you for the gospel of our salvation. We thank you for the grace of our our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. We bless you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, why don't we stand and sing praise to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, using the doxology, page 568 in the hymn book. 568 will stand as we sing together. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Lord, go with us now. Help us to sanctify the day, to call it a delight. And may you bless and encourage each one of us and build us up in our most holy faith. And we ask for your blessing upon the word as it goes forth throughout the earth. May it run swiftly and be glorified. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We may be seated for a brief time of meditation.